to Mind Crime Liberty Show with me, Swithin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss, should public intellectuals be more like Ric Flair? Tim. So again, we're joined by Terminal Philosophy to discuss uh, some extent extenuation of our Alex Jones and Graham Hancock episode, and to some extent our Errors of History podcast uh, episode we did uh, you know, three months or six months ago. Um, and Alex Jones and Graham Hancock are two sort of popular intellectuals who sort of have almost WWE mentality and who, of course, is more pro wrestler, WWF, WWE, I could use the change interchangeably here, who's more of a wrestler's wrestler than Ric Flair. Ric Flair is, if you ask someone like The Undertaker or Shawn Michaels or The Rock, who's their favorite wrestler growing up or who's an inspiration to them, it's probably, it's probably Ric Flair, funnily enough. Ric Flair, ESPN did a documentary on him. You see his name sort of is in the culture. He tried to run for office, supposedly, too. Um, the woo chant is out there as well. So recently, how, how, what, what made me think of this idea? Well, recently I saw an Israeli doctor or an epidemiologist who came out against, I'm not sure if it was the vaccines and lockdown or just the lockdown. And I was reading his article, and it was a great, it was a polemic, basically. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be better if Ric Flair read this? in Ric Flair's mentality, because Ric Flair back in the day was somewhat of a villain that everyone liked. Um, um, he'd go up against guys like Dusty Rhodes. Um, so he had this sort of guy wearing like silk suits and he going up, going into like, I mean, wrestling's like a low, you know, working class type entertainment, especially back in the day. Um, and he, Ric Flair would show up in gator skin, you know, like shoes and all sorts of watches, and he sort of lived the lifestyle as a kind of playboy. Now, someone that was an act, but someone that wasn't an act. So back to the Israeli doctor point, I was thinking, wouldn't it be better if he said this in that mentality? And TP on the recent episode said that Alex Jones is a brand, somewhat of a brand, and everyone knows he's sort of a showman. And wrestling is a show. It's sort of like a fake and real show, uh, wink, wink, at the same time. So it's sort of an interesting sport. And as Eric Bischoff pointed out, the news media at times – is operating from the WWE playbook. I mean, the yelling, the promos. You should watch Donald Trump. That's actually one of the first times I, as a kid, heard of Donald Trump. It was on WrestleMania. I watched that live, where he had a wrestling match with the. Uh, well, he where they had like uh they had hired quote unquote hired people as stand-ins. But actually, Trump and um um McMahon got into a a match on the side of the ring at one point. Um. Um, the Vince, uh, he got clotheslined by he gave Vince a clothesline. Um, um, so what are my point is here? I think certain intellectuals are already becoming like showmen. Uh, Nassim Taleb's been doing this for years. Glenn Greenwald does this. Sam Harris kind of has like a brand almost as well. Christopher Hitchens has a brand. I would argue Chomsky has a brand. Now, the question is, should they should they keep going with this mentality? Because it's one of the ingeniousness of Vince McMahon and wrestling um, um, is the sort of branding of it and the sort of turning into a cultural meme. Like the Hoppian people, the Hoppian memes have sort of become a thing. And, you know, I, you know where does it come from? I think in the past, you know, I was reading a book on R.C. Sproul and Reformation, and he was saying, like, Luther's would call his opponents dogs. So I don't think it's, you know, and there used to be more dueling as well. So I don't think it came out of nowhere here. Um, so my, my my first question to both of you is, I mean, to me, it's already happening. The question is, should we should we cheer this on 
so to speak, like wrestling fans, or should we, you know, bemoan it? I mean, what, what, what's, do you think, first of all, do you agree that the sort of pro wrestlingification of intellectuals and academia is happening? I would think you to some extent agree. And what do you make of this? TP, thanks for being on again. Right. Well, thanks for having me once again. Um, well, yes, actually, uh, in short, I think intellectuals should be more like Ric Flair. And let me explain myself. I think it's a bit more relatable that thinkers bring themselves down a notch or two in terms of seriousness. It, it tends to make, I actually think it tends to make the red meat of an idea more accessible to the average person because you know, public intellectuals, uh, regardless of their um, their degree to which they influence the public, that's what they're out there to do. They're there to influence the public and to, uh, you know, um, carry out their vision, their political or social vision on the world. I think gregariousness is actually a sorely missing element to modern intellectual life. Uh, you both, as well as your, as well as your listeners may recall that, you know, of the early days of uh, blood sports. And I, I mean, in blood sports in a certain way, it never really went away. Blood sports really served as a sort of prototype to the archetype of the uh, debate bro. Um, Tim, what you said earlier in the sense that, you know, Hoppe and others have their own brand to maintain. I think Chomsky uh, is probably the one who could arguably could possibly be removed from that because he is sort of the... Uh, the image of an old intellectual that most people have in their heads where, you know, it's a guy wearing a, a sweater vest and going on for a long time about a certain uh, niche uh, complex topic. Now, of course, somewhere between Chomsky and the tanky infrared, surely there's a middle ground that people can reach for. But I think when people watch a debate between, say, someone like Bosch and someone from the alt-right or, or anyone really, I sometimes think that people aren't necessarily there to be persuaded of one idea or another, the merits. They're there for a crafty uh, mudslinging. I think the desire to seem crafty amongst YouTube debaters is very high. And so that craftiness often comes across as a uh, as sort of a brand unto itself, which can come across like the persona of a professional wrestler. Now, where I think professional wrestling could be uh, less, uh, I guess, used in the public is uh, mainstream media because, A, they don't do it very well, and, B, it actually has uh, – that actually has negative consequences for the public and, you know, especially during elections and things like that. Um, I think I've repeated this on our last uh, episode, but I'll just repeat it here quickly just for – I don't know, just for a summary – you know, the the format of mainstream media is something like, uh, OK, so, you know, we just finished up watching a Doritos commercial and now we're watching uh, Rachel Maddow's Adam's Apple bob up and down aggressively for five minutes about some, uh, you know, some uh, ostensibly woke topic. And then she'll bring on, uh, you know, a, a sparring debate partner and they'll both interrupt each other for a very short amount of time for about two or three or four minutes. And then they'll cut to a Mountain Dew commercial. So <laughs> that format itself uh, makes digesting intellectual topics and uh, topics in the vanities in general very, very difficult, especially for the average person. If you're a blue-collar guy or gal from the Midwest and you fabricate metal and you're trying to wrap your head around the uh, 
<laughs> the finer points of something like election fraud or, uh, excuse me, voter fraud or Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine or, or what have you. So, however, I think intellectualism, if you can call it that, is more uh, consistently explored by the public on places like YouTube and and just video platforms like that. And because uh, it's not the mainstream format, you get to listen to something for a sustained period of time. And so that's where the craft, if you want to call it that, of, of the persona of a wrestler or, or of a large uh, cult of personality type of a person could come out. But uh, it's not going to happen on mainstream media. So I'll leave my first answer at that. I would say I'm in agreement again that I, I do think intellectuals should be um, more like uh, Ric Flair. Um, I mean, so taking it to a slightly different place, I mean, if you look at um, the way, way sort of academic articles are, are written and sort of the culture that's engendered in sort of like in journals and things like that, um, basically any sort of witty or sort of well-written prose is essentially – um, considered unscholarly and the way to be scholarly is to be as dull as possible uh, without any sort of wit or humour or anything. It's just sort of not there. Uh, as an aside, um, Hans Hopper does do this. Um, in one of his essays, I think it's um, one of his journal articles on um, in defence of extreme rationalism, um, it was his entitled, I think it was against the rhetoric of economic, um, uh, Donald McCloskey's uh, rhetoric of economics. One of the, I think it's that paper, has a footnote that says, um, I don't know what the world looks like on LSD, unlike Don Lavoy. Uh, I've never seen that in any other one before, just ripping another guy in a journal article for being on LSD, um, which um, I thought was uh, pretty funny. Um, so I, I think you have a weird sort of disjunct in sort of popular. Um, as you say, like the, the news media stuff and like academia, and there's no real sort of middle ground, which is kind of like vaguely entertaining or entertaining and also in depth. And I think TP's right. I mean, if you're trying to engage like average people who aren't particularly autistes or particularly interested in a certain topic, you kind of need to be quite charismatic to engage people. I mean, so for one thing, if I'm just one around YouTube and I say, oh, there's another ZZEC video. I'm much more inclined to watch a ZZEC video than many others because ZZEC's funny. And that's me. And I'm really not representative of most people. And if I'm much more likely to watch a ZZEC video because I know he's funny, um, I mean, that's going to increase the amount of time other people are going to watch a video like that, um, knowing that he's quite entertaining. So having these sort of brands is, is good. I mean, obviously, the problem with just getting into mudslinging is kind of uh kind of be an issue but i think if you have a situation where you can have people who are entertaining and um and this can hold people's attention in longer formats this is all for the better and on the side with that although interestingly he isn't necessarily hugely entertaining most of the time that's where for instance um uh joe rogan does well i mean Who'd have thought you'd be able to get like teenage boys to listen to three hours of an interview with somebody? Um, that isn't what you would typically have expected. Um, so, in general, yeah, Ric Flair for the win. Great. Um, so, 
Now, Ric Flair is one type of wrestler, and I think you could have other wrestlers. I think different intellectuals look at after different. You can more like The Undertaker, more like Triple H, or more like Steve Austin. You know, you don't have to be like Ric Flair. But I think Ric Flair is interesting because because uh, uh, he is sort of like a he's a very confident individual, and he's very famous for his promos. And and, and Paul Godfrey, he runs. I think it's the Clear. I forget what he I forget what journal he runs. Um, some review of books, and he said he wants to keep the tone polemic in nature rather than dry. Uh, uh, and the reason he wants to keep it so is keep people interested. It, he said we don't represent the mainstream, we don't represent conservative. We want to be we want to be edgy and we want to push things. Um, so that that's so. And Peter Hitchens, I think, he, he said this I think in an interview once that. Uh, or his column that when he goes to like to debate someone like on marriage or whatever topic, um, he knows in a way that he's the villain, um, that he's entering the room. And actually, he was asked about why he stopped debating his brother because he, he said he didn't want to make it to the dog and pony show, so to speak. Uh, uh, so I, I do think I do think intellectuals know to some to some extent it's more self-conscious that they are in a way brands uh, something. And Zizek. Zizak is extremely interesting because he knows that too, that he's somewhat of a, you know, uh, uh, you know, he does film reviews, he does, he has a lot of popular work, and I, and he went after Chomsky well as well. He said he's, I've never heard of someone who's more empirically incorrect more often than Chomsky. He was like almost like a rap diss, almost going back and forth. And I think Chomsky's response was, "What theory?" Um, so that sort of. A playback was interesting, and the the Hoppe article that's hilarious as well. Um, so 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 yeah, the 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 um, mudslinging is 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 interesting, and I think I think it does go back further um, into the past than than people on certain topics, and than some of the more you know the people who sort of disdain this. Um, but in a way, we've entered the sort of media culture now, and and we can't really can't really come back from that. Um, so the so the first question for both of you, uh, sh- um, should it happen? Should it happen? I mean, the boring answer is to say it shouldn't. We should just focus on the arguments here. Um, um, even if one is saying there is no knowledge or that. that um, so, so what's interesting to me about, let me backtrack. What's interesting to me about Ric Flair is his confidence here. And that's one of the things I think is interesting. So to take a look more like Robert Malone. What Robert Malone is doing in that three-hour interview with Joe Rogan on Spotify is sort of interesting and so is heroic in a way because he's going after a huge body of of power elites, authorities, and so forth. I mean, so I mean, the amount of confidence it takes to do that is is quite is quite incredible. And we brought up um, Graham Hancock from we did it like a month ago. He's another guy that's going up against a very entrenched elite. Uh, uh, intellectually, of course, in his case, um, and then you know people like Alex Jones who question 9/11 or question o- other topics. You know, he's again to, to say that you, you think the mainstream is wrong, um, which is what I think what goes back to Paul Gottfried's point about I think it's the, the review of books or something like. I, I can't think of the name. Um, you sort of want to keep it polemic, but but also. To even to even advance those things, to a certain extent, you have to be sort of out there in confidence, like Ric Flair. So, how much should this matter here uh, for both of you? Do you think it should matter a lot? Do you think it should matter nothing at all? Uh, I mean, to me, I, I made a comment here. Socrates going to Athens, he may as well be wearing 
a gold ring and flashy coat like saying, look, I'm here. I'm 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 going to take the punishment here. I want to take the punishment. Um, you should put me up in a hotel. I think it was basic line was you should pay for my you should pay me uh, to teach all your children, I think was roughly the line he did in the Plato's Apology or something like or the trial of Socrates. Um, um, so I think I think that that kind of, um, you know, beef mentality that you see with Rick where it goes back much farther. Um, and, and, as, and as Peter Hitchens points out with Christ, he, he has um, throwbacks that are, you know, he'll make fun of his opponents um, when 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 asked from time to time. So uh, I, I think it matters somewhat. Maybe we shouldn't go all the way, but I definitely think it's going that way, even if even if we choose not to. So, TP, what would you say about my comments? I mean, how much should the pers- persona matter to one's argument? And how much is this related to just a simple ad hominem argument as well? I mean, that's, I think, a point that also has to be brought up. But, you know, you, know, you could say, well, that's a bad character, therefore the argument's false. That's also a problem. This is a good character. You know, it's also it might also be a problem there, too. So what do you make of that first sort of sort of a comment and a question there? TP? Uh, yes. Overall, I think it's fine to bring a, a certain element of gregariousness to a debate. I think the way in which an argument is delivered is arguably, you know, anywhere from a third to half of the overall pie chart of of how much attitude and persona is to be brought to a debate in the first place. The reason why I say that is because uh, what Swithin said earlier is basically a good uh, summary of that. When you are sort of perusing the Internet for something uh, history or politically related or something in the humanities, I guess you don't want to hear someone who is, you know, really boring and dull delivering it. You want someone with, uh, you know, a certain personality and, you know, maybe gregariousness isn't the best way to describe that. But, um, you know, when someone detects a personality, but they're they're also well read in either the Western canon or humanities in general, well, it just makes the overall package, uh, you know, when, when that intellectual is attempting to persuade you of something, it makes it... Uh, more relatable and simply just easier to digest. That's not to say that there's not a place in the world for the drier intellectual types. Um, I think the one thing that helps the dry intellectual types uh, save them from obscurity is if their craft is exceptionally good. So uh, as long as that's there, or as long as they have some some type of originality on their own ideas or, or uh, on a political theory or something like that, or they have a unique way of analyzing something, I think that's fine. But uh, typically the public uh, favors someone with a personality and with a little bit of, uh, you know, something combustible going on rather than just sort of a, uh, I mean, again, maybe this is a bad way of, uh, maybe this is a bad comparison, but uh, someone not like Chomsky is typically preferred because Chomsky is sort of like the C-SPAN 65 and older uh C-SPAN demographic is best is the best way I can describe him. But uh, Zizek, you know, with his debates in Jordan Peterson, he almost kind of plays with Jordan Peterson and his witty comments either about Hegel or Marx or the early psychiatrists of the 20th century and so on and so forth. He, you know, he's kind of there to have fun because, you know, he knows that he's sort of the villain, too, because I think uh, the way the public perceives Jordan Peterson is like uh, this up and coming uh sort of self-help guru who's the good guy against the, the the mean old Marxist where 
it's hard to describe, you know, it's hard to think of Zizek in that way because he's not a, he's not a Marxist, I would say in the textbook sense, he's kind of more of a, uh, I don't know. He, he, he always struck me more as a, of a Hegelian than he did just a, uh, a textbook Marxist, but you know, he's also really funny and witty and that's kind of why people like to watch him because he has both the ability to, you know, recall a lot of uh, interesting ideas and theories and political science and is just a great curator of the humanities. Um, and, you know, he's got a funny way of doing it, whereas sometimes Jordan Peterson may attempt or ends up coming across too seriously to people in trying, you know, in the name of slaying evil or something like that. So, and maybe I'm projecting my desires on reality there in that analysis, but that does seem to be the overall uh, gestalt of things between those two. But um, yeah, I would say the degree to which a persona should be present in, uh, in, you know, in debates or in, in promoting ideas, I, it's somewhere anywhere from a third to a half at least, because again, you want to, you know, people are kind of looking for that Julius Caesar kind of, uh, you know, general Patton kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of a personality to go along with good ideas in terms of, uh, the humanities in general. I think your comparison with Peterson and Zizek is interesting. Um, I remember listening to the, um, debate on, um, uh, communism, uh, the, the communism debate. Um, I think Zizek clearly wins, I think, as sort of on, on, on technical matters, although Zizek is hugely sly um, at the same time because he basically doesn't defend communism. He defends a variant of welfare state capitalism because um, and this is, I think, one aspect of certain intellectuals and why they're poor in debates and why I don't think they communicate hugely well to certain audiences is they're not streetwise enough. I don't know if Peterson did his homework on um, Zizek, but uh, Peterson starts out the debate by basically going, well, this is what the Communist Manifesto says, and that's stupid. Zizek's a commie, so I misbelieve that. And then Zizek goes, nah, well, you have to be a communist to believe that. I mean, There's new sorts of Marxism. And he completely sidesteps everything he said in his opening statement. Um, which is kind of entertaining and kind of sly in its own right. Um, and so you you do need some sort of uh, streetwise uh, aspect uh, to this sort of uh, debaters. Um, I think TP's right when he mentions you can get away with being boring and dry if you're original. Um, but the thing is, so few people are original in any real meaningful way that... Um, really do want to sort of amp up the sort of um, the interest. I mean, what's kind of what's kind of odd in a certain way is that you think that politicians would try to engender great sort of um, cults of personality so they get elected. But almost all politicians are so dull um, and they're sort of like hugely stage managed so that, well, it seems to be the case that politicians these days try to go through um, an interview without making a mistake rather than actually being interesting or saying of anything of note, um, which I suppose may be some of the dispositions of some of the intellectuals, the sort of, as it were, those of less wrong um, mentality.
Um, so when it comes to sort of like persona, should that matter really in the debate? Well, it depends what you're looking, what you want to get out of the debate. I mean, if you do have a formal debate, it is sort of like a verbal punch up. And so in that respect, if you know that going in, then I think that's perfectly fine. I think the problem occurs when debates are a spectacle and also um, ideas as well, uh, overtakes the ideas uh, themselves and then um, means that people kind of hold the views for the wrong reasons or therefore hold the wrong ones because the guy they happen to like who is more sort of charismatic or you know he's obviously right because i mean i mean the interesting thing when you listen to debates is or possibly the most interest well not the most interesting ones are ones where you disagree with both of the debates the debaters but then the reason that's interesting is because you can then more easily tell who wins on sort of on technical grounds um so sort of theology debate i remember listening to doug wilson arguing for calvinism versus some arminian and i was like well i don't actually hold either of your positions on this sort of theology and so it's actually you can actually just tell on sort of like technicality who wins and doug wilson clearly won uh, on technicality um but that's the issue and i suppose then moving away from debates and i think i mentioned this last time in many cases formal debates aren't actually that interesting. Now, it depends who the participants are. But unless you've got particularly charismatic people, formal debates can be very uninteresting because you spend most of the time not disagreeing with anybody. You keep going for all your formal statements and stuff. And so actually more like a, a moderated discussion would is probably more interesting potentially for ideas. Now, whether it would appeal to people as much on spectacle is another question. Although it would be interesting, for instance, to have a rerun of the uh, Peterson Zizek one, but as more of a moderated discussion than as a formal debate, that would be interesting. Um, so yeah, I'm for spectacle, just got to make sure that people realize that debate isn't the end of investigation into ideas. One of the things I think Swith and I, we, we have a, a few disagreements. I think one of the things that Swith and I disagree with is on debates here. Recently, Stefan, oh, sorry, I might say the name right, Kinsella debated um, uh, a, defender, uh, a defender of IP, uh, uh, Epstein. Uh, Richard, Richard Epstein. Epstein. Yeah, Richard Epstein. And uh, I thought it was a quite interesting debate. Um, now, he didn't think, well, I think, I think Swithin's criticism was that, well, they didn't. They sort of just sort of argued like ships in the night, I think, or something like that. And a lot of people say that about the sort of famous Foucault Chomsky debate as well. They didn't really engage each other. Did they sort of just, you know, I think Kinsella just said, oh, we just had this all this empirical arguments. But I thought it was quite interesting because it sort of laid out two competing arguments here. I also saw the Soho forum, forum debate on lockdowns. And this was, I think, was a good. The lady there. This, this is where, this is where I was full. I think it was a very. Whoever decided this was a very tactical move here, because I think again, optics matter. Um, and they brought like they brought a woman to do the. They, they brought a woman to do the uh, argue against the lock uh, against the vaccine mandate. And um, she was just, she was just like, she just was, she just egged on the opponent about every single issue like she was to me she was very good she might not have won on po she might not won on points ground or 
theoretic philosophy, but she was she was just throwing mud at the opponent the whole time, basically, in comments. And she didn't let she didn't take any crap either. So I thought she did very well uh, against the opponent who was arguing in favor of vaccine mandate. It was just like, oh, well, you know, this is an emergency. And she was like, no, it's not. This is nonsense. And I thought she did a very good job. Because I think to some extent, one of the purposes of the debate is to sort of humiliate your opponent. That's I think at times that's that's the should be at least one of the goals here, uh, uh, because you know, ultimately, if you hold a wrong view or hold a view that you think is evil, at some point you have to sort of ask you, why does that person hold the view? I think Alex Jones also thinks that. And that can be a turn on and a put off, of course, if you just want, you know, intellectual exchanges of ideas. So like on the issue of IP, for example, like I, I more or less think Kinsella has the correct view, um, but it was interesting to see that someone tried to defend the incorrect view. Uh, about like it, uh, 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 and I thought Epstein did a, as good of a job as he could with a difficult position here, um, um, uh, because I, it is it is a hard to it's hard to defend that monopoly here. Um, but even Epstein, he has a podcast. I used to listen to it more back when I was more of a minarchist of some variety. Speaking of, and he's 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 somewhat a he's somewhat of a brand, not not a very big one. Um, but he is somewhat of a brand there. Um, and another debate that me and Swithin both watched is the Kinsella versus Jan Helfeld debates, which are certainly legendary in just hilariousness. Um, because, again, it's just it is a bit of a scream fest in a sense, um, not the screaming like screaming, screaming, but like uh, it, it, it's it's quite nasty in a way. Uh, Kinsella was just saying this is aggression. So these to me have these are debates I've seen that have sort of a blood sport, you know, mentality here. But I find that interesting. And you pick up interesting tidbits along the way. Um, I don't I, I don't I don't see that as a problem here. Uh, I, I think that's I think the sort of dramatizing things um, in a way is more interesting. And I think it's more passionate as well. Uh, I think that's something that's sometimes missing. Um, you know, either the, you brought up that Doug Wilson debate. I think the speakers that tend to have passion, even when they lose, they lose in a way like Ric Flair would lose. They sort of lose in sort of this bombastic um, way. Speaking of losing into my speak, Nassim Taleb, who's been who I like a lot. I mean, I read all his books. He was very pro lockdown, very pro vaccine mandate. I'll give him credit. He's he's. He's been extremely consistent early on. Like he was double masking a year, two years ago before everyone else did it. Um, um, so like even the villains I see in the same way with Zizek, um, certain issues I view Zizek as a villain, of course, being a sort of pure capitalist of some variety, but I had to view him as a villain in certain ways. At least he's sort of pure and out there. He's not like some of the moderates sometimes, they hold sort of like this sort of wishy-washy, you know, compromise position to try to make everyone happy, uh, uh, which you don't always see. So that's 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 to me the upside of the Ric Flair mentality. Uh, that's the upsides. So if you guys want to comment on that, you go ahead. Then we'll sort of get into the downsides here. I do think there are downsides here. So if you guys want to comment on that, and then our final section will be on the downsides, of course. Uh, what do you? If you want to get into that, go ahead. TP. <coughs> 
Yeah, the one comment I was going to say is that, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, which you mentioned earlier, Tim, was the uh, the Foucault-Chomsky debates of, I think, what was that, sometime, sometime in the 1970s, I think. Uh, you know, I mean, I think one thing, I haven't seen that in a few years, but one thing I do remember Chomsky saying is that, well, Foucault, your ideas are inaccessible because you write so abstractly. I mean, that was kind of like the that's really the one rap disc that I can remember, if you can even call it that. But uh, yeah, they weren't really uh, debating each other directly. They were kind of more discussing their own ideas. And I think it was a debate on human nature, I think. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong on the on the debate topic, but um, you kind of have that example at the other end where it's just so dry and it's so inaccessible that uh, you don't have very many people to win over or any sort of public policy to directly influence from the beginning because you're just dealing in such theoretical niche topics that are very, inex you know, they're made inaccessible by the difficulty of the subject and also by the rigidness and sort of uh, ungregarious personalities of the interlocutors. So yes, that can uh, <laughs> that, that can make it difficult to uh, popularize an idea or a certain type of uh, you know analysis on a topic related to humanities. Uh, that's the only thing I was going to say about that before we go to the downsides of uh, Ric Flairism. What I want to say is I listened to the Chomsky-Foucault uh, debate a while ago, but oddly I remember it being reasonably interesting and probably more interesting than the Richard Epstein, um, Stephen Kinsella one. Although I suppose because I knew the the background to Kinsella and Epstein much more than I did for from Foucault's approach and um, and Chomsky's, so um, I suppose I was learning more more from that. So. I, I actually quite like that one, oddly. Um, but, um, yeah, um, that's all I've really got to add there, I think, before we hit the downsides. Okay, great. Well, so the final the final section here will be on the downsides. And the downsides to me, I, th I think there's a few of them. First of all, of course, it obviously distracts from the intellectual arguments here. Uh, you know, it... It, that that's a quite obvious here. So like, if you wrote this down, would it still be? Would if you wrote it down and had it read in a hundred years, does it still make sense? Is it still relevant? Is it still worthy to read? I mean, if it passes that test, I think you know, then yes, it still works. So like, so like you know, as as dry as some of a like, I, I on a, on on the few long plane rides I was on in the past, I used to try to read Thomas uh, read Thomas Aquinas. I had it saved on my Kindle, I read Thomas Aquinas, it's free. Uh, the uh, theology, I forget which book it is. There's a couple of them. I just try to go through the points. I tried to read like 20 points an hour or something like that. Again, I don't know how much I picked up, but I think it's sort of a worthy thing to try to do. Um, 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 so like people, you know, David Friedman would say, oh, we still read Aristotle or we still read, I don't know, Zeno or we still read Socrates. So I think if 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 it lasts a long time, will it last a long time? That's a good question here. Um, but then again, some of those writers are also quite entertaining in a way or clear. Um, um, so it, I think I think having too much persona obviously distracts from it, and it's also a way to funnel ideas. Which if there is such thing as un, if there's such thing as non-truth or, or incorrect arguments or whatever you want to say here, I don't really want to make a Epistemology argument here, whether it exists or not. 
if you have a charismatic person, they can make arguments that are untrue very well. All right. Uh, uh, that that's 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 quite obvious here. Uh, uh, so so that's that's one thing. I I say that's if I really want to sort the downsides is is if if it's an issue I disagree with. Let's say you have a left wing version of Ric Flair or like a sort of um, pro lockdown or some pro. I don't know if you if you saw like we recently did um, the Graham Hancock thing. Um, if you had someone an Egyptologist who came on who was actually very charismatic um, and make arguments in favor of that, then then maybe it's not as interesting. Then maybe I'd be more. <clears throat> then maybe I wouldn't like it as much. Um, um, but in a way, in a way, the mainstream I don't think will ever do this. I think. And for structural reason, I think the mainstream won't do this because in a way, and I think we brought this up in the last episode, institutions sort of have to be more to what I think I think are called the politics of uh, respectability. Um, um, so so the outsider always, in a way, has to act like this. And a lot of times currently we three, we don't we all have the same politics or world views, but I think we're more outsiders, especially to academia in a lot of ways. Um, at least who's in charge, so to speak. Uh, uh, so so I do think there are downsides. I think the number one downside is that if you have a thing that's wrong or thing that's bad or thing that's incorrect, and that is, you know, being stated, a charismatic Ric Flair type can get away. I don't want to belabor that point. That would be my thing. What would be your thing? Would you agree, TP? And then we pass it just with it. <clears throat> Now, I'm sorry. Do you mind just restating your question uh, one more time, please? I apologize. What are the downsides? I've listed my what I would view as the primary downside, which is something like uh, uh, the downsides of intellectuals acting like Ric Flair being overly uh, grandiose or being overly bellicose. That, that would be my downside is, is, is if you have an, a false idea or a wrong idea, uh, a, you know, this and they're very charismatic. It's it's it's, it's not that it's not that hard to. To explain here in that way, that'd be my downside. TP, what would be your downside? If if and would you agree with me saying that is a big downside? <clears throat> uh, right, yeah, that's an interesting point, and I I fully agree with you there. Um, you said something interesting earlier, which was that uh, you know if if someone has you know if one of the interlocutors has a very uh, sort of exaggerated and bellicose personality, as you put it then they can still end up being technically wrong in a very sort of artistic sort of way. And I think that that is, um, that's actually the problem where, um, what, what I mentioned earlier that the mainstream can sort of suffer from. I think, you know, they can be wrong about something sort of semi-artistically and in a, in a crafty sort of way, and you can end up persuading the public or more, uh, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to say gullible people, but, you know, highly malleable people of something wrong or potentially immoral. So, yes, I think this is at least one of the precise points at which um, gregariousness or a sort of over-the-top personality can become a hindrance in terms of public debates in the humanities. Uh, yes, of course, um, as with many things in life, there requires a bit of a balancing act. I think first and foremost, uh, you know, if you are someone who's interested in history or philosophy or psychology or uh, you know one of these uh, one of these soft sciences, then I think it 
it's uh, important for you to do your homework, so to speak, for several years before you enter a debate. So you are, you know, you're well equipped and you have a good understanding of what's going on. And, you know, with these soft sciences there, again, I think there's sort of a uh, interesting fine line between where a person or a debater in these, you know, in these soft sciences, you know, th there's this desire to seem crafty it's difficult where that line starts and where their genuine attempt or their genuine um, uh, sort of the the genuine part of themselves is trying to put a, is trying to get across their uh, debate or excuse me get across their their side of the argument and so that can be very difficult to detect depending on how um, you know how well you are attuned to pick up on that sort of thing so, yes, I think it requires a balancing act. But, you know, again, if you're too gregarious, uh, I, I brought up this gentleman earlier, but uh, some, I imagine you or, or you gentlemen or a few of your listeners may have listened to the uh, the YouTuber Infrared. He's basically a self-described Stalinist tanky. Um, I, I kind of like him for the sense in that he's he is over the top. But then, you know, he's kind of a two-fisted fighter. You know, on the one hand, he can just, you know, be this big, loud, um, you know, personality that just, you know, people go there to watch a screaming match. It's sort of in sort of a funny way. Or he can shift gears and he can start, uh, you know, he can start rapping Hegel uh, quite uh, clearly in, in several debates. He's demonstrated that. So I, I kind of like that about him. I'm not a Stalinist myself, at least not yet, but... <laughs> I, I, I do find that ability to do both or both at once in sort of a complicated overlapping kind of a way uh, very, um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a, a, an interesting ability. And I think that, that that would help a lot of people. But uh, now maybe some people would argue that he's not the best example. And OK, you know, fair enough. But at least I've detected in him some, you know, a good a good foundation of uh what you could say western analytical philosophy western history and then i you could maybe throw in a bit of uh you know genuine uh, decent political science and political analysis in there so that you know whether infrared or other people are are not the best examples i think what i'm what i what i stated just now is like you you want that sort of uh balance to be achieved as um you mentioned uh tim yeah i i think that the charlatan who who is a charismatic sort of sophist uh, is is of course one of the uh, large problems with the big personality stuff. Um, and as I said before, the focus on personality over ideas as well is is also a a particular issue. Um, I think interesting you brought up Aristotle because um, the stuff we have, if if my understanding is correct, what we have left of Aristotle is what was written notes by his students. Um, because from the historical references, Aristotle was apparently supposed to be a very good orator and writer. Uh, it's just that we just have the notes from his uh, students, which were somewhat dry. Um, so maybe if we'd actually had original Aristotle, it would be like the metaphysics, but sort of vaguely entertainingly written as well as being. Um, I mean, it, it does seem to be a skill that very few people have um for instance um just on writing this is more than public persona but it's intellectual to some extent um is um 
Edward Fazer is a very good writer as well as being a decent philosopher. Even if you think he's wrong on issues, he's clearly thought about stuff that can make artic- articulate claims. But he's really quite easy to read and sort of, you know, reasonably entertaining. Um, whereas most, a lot of sort of uh, philosophy written um, is sort of turgid and really quite difficult. And I'm not even talking about Derrida or Foucault. I'm just saying it's just clunky and just without sort of, um, it isn't, you know, isn't something you could relatively easy read. I'm not saying that scholastic metaphysics is an easy read, but I mean, it's a much easier read than it could have been. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to the downside and sort of personality, you, you're sort of getting onto the idea of of the arts, and it reminds me of what Plato says in the Republic about you know we've got to make sure that the um, the artist is sort of like very controlled, otherwise you will send uh, the, the the public stray because in a way um, being a good sort of stylistic debater or entertaining in the sense is artistic in a sense I think did I remember or someone claimed that Alex Jones in one of the court cases he had against him was saying that he was engaged in performance art and you shouldn't necessarily take everything he says seriously um now that may have been a misquote uh, or false um either way you could very much claim that sort of the style that um jones goes for is he's almost like performance arts as, as a way so it it it's really you're you're getting into sort of like, i think the relationship between sort of like the arts and sort of like the sciences is more broadly conceived uh, this guy must have been super autiste um, but I remember there was a guy on the old Mises forum uh, who um, limited himself. Was it he limited himself to like one novel a year to maintain and quote epistemic hygiene? Um, this guy was um, like, I, I imagine he would prefer all books to be written in symbolic logic. Um, that, that's um, that's the kind of guy he is. But I mean, very few people are going to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's atypical. And I think, again, you want to bring it. Actually, it's 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 I think one of the problems with intellectuals is they're so specialized that they have no training anything else and therefore can't link things and make interesting connections because they simply don't know anything about any other area. Um, I suppose this is sort of like the. uh, bring out the old call for the old sort of like renaissance man sort of uh broad intellectual uh background so that you can actually make these sorts of comments i i suspect zizek is like that to a large extent actually you bring back as one of the good examples um of that and i i think that a lot of debaters or a lot of writers because they're so myopic in their focus there's literally nothing that they can reference to something else that they actually have know anything about to make their writing or, or speech interesting. Um, so that's a, a problem and just a diagnosis, I think, one of the reasons why we are where we are. As far as you see, Zizak is extremely well read and he is extremely well read. He, I mean, he quotes Chesterton, he'll quote Socrates, he'll quote all sorts of people. So Zizak is extremely well read, which I think is one of the reasons 
he is so popular because he has a lot of depth um, um, in a way, a lot of you run into sort of your comment about academic writers being clunky is is entirely correct here. And I say this is someone who's um, not particularly I'm not sure about my writing myself, but uh, writing is a sort of difficult activity. Even if you're just sort of writing, you know, a simple persuasive paper, you'd have to make, you know, a claim to, to I don't know, to, for someone to do this, just sort of a ad hoc idea coming off the top of my head. Um, but writing is sort of a difficult activity, and you're right about people like Phaser. They are they are useful, but then this usefulness comes, as you point out, the sort of one novel a year guy. Um, this this sort of usefulness also has a it has a bugaboo where it's just all just sophistry. Um, so there is there is extremes here. There is extremes, but I do think you know of the late. Um, it seems like we have well, inst- there's sort of the institutions as we say in the last episode um, are sort of fortresses which aren't really allowing ideas out. Um, well, actually, they're allowing the worst ideas in a way out, um, and they're keeping a lot of people out too. Uh, 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 so so. So mainstream institutions, I think, to some extent, not to sound like too much like a paleocon, I do think there was I do think there was a time maybe there was a time when the certain academic institutions were stronger. Maybe not. Uh, I'm unclear about, you know, whether there was some quote unquote golden age in the past. But I do I do think in our current day, uh, certain types of intellectual ideas, libertarians, you know, people going up against certain mandates. Um, should be more Ric Flair light because they just don't have anything to lose, quite frankly. I, I think the mainstream has a lot more to lose here um, by being like more more Ric Flair like. Uh, uh, so that would be my overall comments here. And I, and I think I think it's first like you enough reference to a few Christian debaters here. I think in general they should be more like Ric Flair like, but they have to be more measured also. Um, so for them it's more tricky. But on certain issues, like Robert Malone, like like that guy, that guy has to go on to go up against the that that Bakaria guy. I can't, I never can say his name. It's the, well, the the epidemiologist who's been a skeptic and Scott Atlas. Like you know, these guys, to me, what they're doing is being and like Forrest Jones, Hancock, and others. They're going up against a big mainstream. We went over through that through all the last episode. So that's really my final comment here. I mean, I, I, you know, if you're on the outside, I think you should be much more Ric Flair-like because you got nothing to lose. Uh, that's my final comment. Um, TP or Swithin, do you have anything more to add? You could do so, or Swithin could wrap this up. Nice talking to both of you as well. Uh, yeah, I'll just mention real quickly. Uh, yeah, I'll just echo your final statement in the sense that. Um yeah, if you're some sort of, uh, if you hold some high office or you're a part of a well-respected institution, uh, you know, if you go on the Joe Rogan podcast and you come out just all guns blazing and you you come across like uh, Roddy Piper from They Live, well, then you might uh, have a shot to your reputation. Uh, but if you have nothing to lose or if you're Zizek and you're debating Jordan Peterson on Marxism or something like that, I would say that's where it's it's fine to shift gears and you can just be as, as funny or witty or, you know, if you want to just be as sagacious as you want to, then I think that that's fine. You know, if you have nothing to lose and if, and if you have tenure or if your persona and reputation is already, has already been pre-established, 
then I would say yes. I mean, you can just you're just feel, feel free to just be yourself. Um, the the idea that was mentioned earlier that you know some of these institutions are sort of retaining some more of their human capital and intellectual capital and sending out uh, the 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 worse uh, or you know less desirable representatives of the institution out into society. Yeah, I, I think that that's a problem. I mean. Uh, it's unfortunate because, you know, places like UC Berkeley, you know, have this social reputation of being this you know, insufferable leftist institution. And in a way, I think that that is true. However, you know, I mean, I'm sure that Berkeley is staffed by plenty of smart, highly well-read humanities and, and science professors of all, you know, shapes and backgrounds. But unfortunately, it's the... Uh, it's the activistic side of Berkeley that is really the public image that it, that the world knows it by in in the in the present day. And so, you know, what to do about that? I'm not I'm not exactly sure. But um, yeah, that that's how uh, to, institutions. To quick interrupt here. To sure. quick interrupt here. The one of the funny things I think Malice was Michael Malice was pointing out on Twitter that that they've been shut down for the last two years. That a lot of these sort of you know these hyper liberal use that word air quotes progressive whatever you want to call it institutions have been more or less you know they've been locked in their dorm rooms hiding under six days a week of testing and quarantine so there's a sort of irony here that they're sort of um um that that they've been sort of shut down but although they've went all online and some of it some of it's spilled over in public um but yeah i mean they sort of send out and and their cultural capital still exists because that's one of the to me one of the irritating things about like I'd say people older than me, boomers and so forth, they still have a high regard for like, you know, the universities here, like the people who have degrees and people like, in my opinion, it's almost like if you have a degree, it's almost like a, you know, how much did you sell out? Not that, not, not, not that I say that you shouldn't have a degree, but if, if, if you're like work, yeah, you sort of have to explain to me why you're not, you're not just some sort of NPC drone in a way. That'd be my that'd be my retort here. But sorry for interrupting. <clears throat> no, that, that's that's fine, and and that's a great point too. I mean, I, I think uh, yeah, what it means to have a degree nowadays is certainly different than it did uh, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, my my dad, for example, is a, a retired uh, psychologist, and you know, I mean, I remember early on. Um, I don't know. I mean, we had all sorts of books in the house, uh, and I just remember reading everything from. Uh, I remember reading everything from New Yorker magazines to Luftwaffe combat histories to uh, uh, to C.S. Lewis, uh, and and I guess my point with that is is that uh, you know my dad had a lot of interests, and so did so did my mom. Uh, you know, literary interests that is, and you know there was just so many different things uh, available to sort of read from uh, you know in my house and to, and to discuss growing up I, I definitely I think I took that for granted at the time and then you know and, and you know a lot of that came from my dad's studies at you know at his various universities that he attended and uh, and so my impression going into school then I you know I started college in, in 2008 and I finished about uh, six years afterwards but uh, um, my impression going in was that oh well, I'm just going to be I'm going to be surrounded by all these people uh, like me who are who who grew up with you know interesting parents who have you know wide ranging uh, interests and you know and, and and who are open to a lot of different uh, 
you know, uh, you know, different politics and philosophies and things like that. But uh, by 2008, I think uh, clown world, as we like to call it, was certainly well on its way. And so that's not the uh, those aren't the type of people that I found myself surrounded by. But uh, but growing up, I, I remember being sort of excited by the possibility of, uh, you know, getting older and getting more into, uh, you know, history, psychology, philosophy and, and other things like that. So um, <laughs> without carrying on with the rest of my life story, I think I'll I think I'll, I think I'll cut it there. But uh, thank you again for having me. Thanks for joining us, NCP. Uh, just with uh, UCL, um Berkeley, um, I, I, I do think the universities really need to get uh, public debates with sort of charismatic, as charismatic a, uh, lecturers and professors as they can to really engage and show that, you know, they're not just these sort of ideology um, um, activist factories and that they don't just care about their own sort of interests. They're actually interested in um ideas and sort of uh, raising sort of the level of discourse as it were within society as a whole and i think that would be a laudable thing for the university to do but uh as you mentioned before they've got too much to lose i mean um this tends to be the case in general uh, joe rogan back to that i think it's in the malone um interview he mentions how back in the day he interviewed peter Duesberg, and peter Duesberg was the guy who said that um hiv doesn't cause aids he says it was basically all the gays taking poppers and other stuff that basically did in their immune systems. And Rogan said, yeah, we had him on and we tried to find someone to debate him. Um, but nobody would. Literally nobody of any standing would debate Peter Duesberg. And this is one of the problems of trying to get these is that um, the establishment simply have too much to lose to bother doing. It. I mean, so, for instance, I've never come across any major. I mean, Pants Down, what's his real name? Uh, Ferguson. Um, it'd be interesting. He actually debated a, a lockdown skeptic at a public forum, but it simply will not happen because he has far too much to lose. Um, so that's what we really want to uh, engender. But yeah, I can't see it happening anytime soon. I just now I thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean and YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com.